And so, Pat, if you would come forward now and begin to read for us from God's Word. 1 Peter 1, 22-25 Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. 1 Corinthians 13 If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, And if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. This is 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. John 3, 1-8 Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. 
Well, as we look at 1 Peter 1, uh, 22 to 25 this morning, it is a somewhat of a complicated passage. There's a lot of pieces to put together, and so I will do my best to make clear exactly what God is communicating to us by his word this morning. Let me read it for us just one more time and, and try to show you how I'm putting it together at a basic level, and then we'll dive into the various parts. So 1 Peter 1, 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That far we covered last week, but notice the primary command there, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And then verse 23, beginning with since, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So notice the conclusion there of verse 25. This word is the good news, or the gospel, that was preached to you. So Peter is saying that a gospel was preached to these churches that he is writing to in his letter, And then he's saying that something happened when this gospel was preached, when this good news was preached. The beginning of verse 23, since you have been born again. So the gospel was preached. The individuals in these churches were born again. And what is the nature of their new birth? Well, the nature of their new birth is the nature of the word, right? That caused them to be born again. It says you were born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And then he quotes the prophet Isaiah to affirm for us that the word of God really is living and abiding. That is that it lasts forever. And so it's because the gospel is the word of God and the gospel itself is living and abiding. It it does not fade. It's imperishable because the gospel itself is imperishable. And because the gospel itself is what has caused us to be born again, That means that we ourselves now take on this characteristic of being imperishable, right? Born of imperishable seed, we now have an imperishable hope, and we are to love one another with a love that is imperishable. Now, if you're like me, what you find most confusing about these verses is actually that word since at the beginning of verse 23, right? In verse 22, we have this command to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. But then he says, since you've been born again of an imperishable seed. And all of a sudden you're wondering, well, what does being born again of an imperishable seed have to do with the fact that we're supposed to love one another? Now there's many different ways to put this together. You know, looking across several different commentaries, you see many different options, many different ways that is possible to understand the, the exhortation or the reasoning that Peter uses here to push on this command of love in our hearts. But I think that the way this works is the way that is perhaps so obvious that it's not initially present to our minds. And that is that when you look at verse 23 and he says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, notice that he is using a biological metaphor there, is he not? Born again. 
All of us were born at one time, right? All of us are familiar with the idea of a physical birth, right? All of us had a physical birth if we are here right now. And when we were born physically, we were born into a family, right? Whoever you're born to, that person is, by definition, your mother. The person who is your father is, by definition, your father. You have brothers and sisters. All this is by nature of your physical birth. And Peter here is saying, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, that is not of human seed, you haven't been born again in a physical way, Right, Like we saw in John 3, Nicodemus asking, how can I enter my mother's womb again if I'm old? Jesus is saying, no, you're misunderstanding. You're not reborn in a physical way. You're reborn by the Spirit. Or as Peter here says, you have been born again of an imperishable seed. An imperishable seed. And what is the imperishable seed that we're born again through? It is the Word of God, the Gospel that was preached to us. In other words, What Peter is saying is that we have been born into an eternal family when we believe in Jesus Christ. When we trust in the gospel, we experience a new birth, and this new birth is not into a new biological family. It's not into a perishable family. It is into an imperishable family because the whole family is made up of people who have been born again by the word of God, which is itself imperishable. Now, just to reinforce this point, I think if you just go down a little bit further in chapter 2, you see Peter staying on this biological metaphor. So, 2.1, he says, Put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy, all slander. These are all things that ruin families, right, when you do them. But then verse 2, like newborn infants, right? That's what we are when we're born, right? We're newborn infants. And so when we're born again spiritually, We're like spiritual infants, right? Like newborn infants. And what do infants drink? They drink milk. And just like a newborn spiritual infant, what are we supposed to long for? What are we supposed to want? Pure spiritual milk. And it's the milk that causes us to grow up into salvation. Now, what is this milk? What is this nourishment that causes us to to grow up, this pure spiritual milk? Well, it is exactly what Peter refers to in verse 24. It is the word of God, the imperishable word of God. And so in other words, what Peter is telling us is he is telling us that the word of God itself, right? The the Bible that I have right here, the gospel that we strive to look into every week when we take the Lord's Supper especially, that gospel, that good news, this word of God has such power that it causes us to be born again. And don't sell that metaphor short, okay? How, how dramatic was it when you were born physically? How significant was it for your life? There could be no part of your life more significant, right? <laughs> you would not be here if you did not have a physical birth. What's more significant than who is your mom? Who is your dad? Who are your siblings? Your aunts, your uncles? All these things, all these things come to you at birth. Your, your very DNA, your, your quirks, your characteristics, these things all come to you at birth, right? Your physical birth is momentous. It is the most momentous thing in anyone's life, right? And so when Peter, when Jesus is speaking of being born again, he means that with all the ramifications we could possibly consider it to have. The new birth is not like, okay, I 
didn't know about Jesus before, and now I know about Jesus. So now I'm born again, right? That's, that's the one change in my life. Before I didn't know, now I know. I'm born again. That's, that's not a new birth, beloved. That's changing your mind about one thing, right? The new birth, if it is genuinely a new birth, goes from the roots all the way to the top of the trees. It covers your whole life. It changes your perspective on everything because it is a new birth. Because you're born again into a whole new realm, a whole new world. You're not born just into this physical world. You're not born of perishable seed. You're born of imperishable seed. You're born into a world that starts now and lasts forever and ever. And therefore, your whole life is turned upside down. Your whole life looks different after the new birth than it looks before the new birth. And again, this is the work of God in our lives. This is not mainly a self-help or self-improvement strategy that we have. You know, I don't come here every week teaching you 12 steps to the new life or something like that. There are no steps that you can take to the new life. It must be the word of God divinely imparted to your soul. And when the word of God is imparted to your soul, this radical transformation takes place. Now, I know in the modern world, we have a very low opinion of magic, right? Uh, we, we think that magic is just all made up, and right, whenever anybody does a magic trick in any way, we always want to look behind the curtain, as it were, to see, okay, I know there's some rational explanation for how they did that, you know, just let me see. Or, uh, you know, my, my children really love uh, Scooby-Doo, you know, and all his mysteries, and there's always some, like, ghoul or ghost in there. But at the end of the episode, what always happens, right, it's just some person in a fancy costume, right? And so, so we tend to think that everything on this earth can be explained just by natural, ordinary means, right? And so, consequently, in our lives, often, we seek to change to improve our own lives by these natural and ordinary means, But what Peter is saying here about the Word of God is that the Word of God does not transform us by natural or ordinary means. The Word of God is as close as we can get today to magic, okay? It has some kind of force, some kind of power that cannot be explained scientifically, that cannot be explained in terms of just natural processes, right? Sometimes we even come to the word of God and we ourselves who believe that God's word is powerful, we can easily forget that, right? We can think that the word of God only has power insofar as, you know, I can rationally explain how the passage works or understand the main points or only insofar as my mind has the ability to understand the intention of the author and we can reduce the word of God to this very natural means that happens in a natural way by our own reason, by our own sense. And when we do that, we drain the word of God of much of its life-giving power. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not at all saying we should not try to understand the Word of God or that understanding the Word of God is not important. It is critically important. If we are really going to engage with God's Word, we must not simply read the words on the page as if it were a magic book. Yes, we must investigate its meaning. But at the same time, even as we investigate its meaning and even as we read the words on the page, we should have hope. Our prayer should be that God would work through these words in a way that goes beyond our rational sense. And that even when our rational sense maybe does work to enlighten something from the passage, it wasn't ultimately our 
brains that made that happen. It was the Spirit of God enlightening our eyes so that we can see the truth of God's Word. Everything having to do with God's Word is supernatural, beloved. Even as I preach to you this morning, yes, I'm using the English language and I'm trying to make it as clear as I can so that you will understand, but my hope ultimately and what I am doing in preaching is not so much communicating a new idea to your head so that maybe later this week you'll remember that idea and maybe that idea will help you in some situation. No, my prayer is that the power of God will go forth through the word of God so that you will be transformed in a way that goes beyond anything that your brain comprehended, in a way that goes beyond anything that some plan that you make based on what you grasp here. Now, again, I don't mean to at all minimize our efforts at planning and our efforts at improvement. Those are all good things. But again, even as we make those efforts, we must continually remind ourselves, continually remind ourselves that the power does not come from us. The power does not come from our wisdom. The power comes from the word of God. That the word of God has this power to cause us to be born again. To be born again, beloved. Now, I trust that most people in this room have tasted of that new birth. And I praise God that you have all tasted of that new birth. But maybe some of you in this room have not tasted of that new birth. Maybe you have just had your mind changed about one minor thing or You just thought you believed in Jesus because you knew that he died and rose again, and so you've affirmed that as some kind of intellectual truth, but it's never actually sunk down into your heart that Jesus took away all your sins, gives you a new resurrection life, and that you will never die, and that that changes everything. And so my prayer for you this morning is that if you have never experienced the depths of the radical change that is implied by the new birth, that you would experience that this very morning. That you would turn to Jesus, that you would hear the gospel preached, and that you would let the gospel have its effect upon your heart. That you would let the gospel melt your hardness of heart, whereby you seek to gain your own sufficiency, your own meaning, your own purpose, apart from God. And that in the gospel, you would know the power of God for new birth and for salvation. And that you would ultimately rely on him every day of your life. That you would look to him and not to yourself. Because it is the word of God that has power to cause us to be born again. Now, when Peter emphasizes for us here that this word of God is imperishable, I think he really means two things by saying that the word of God is imperishable. One thing he means, surely, is just duration, right? Or quantitative. So how long will this new birth last? How long will the power of God last? The power of God will last forever. The new birth will last forever. Jesus says, Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet will he live, right? We will never die if we believe in Jesus. We have this imperishable life. But it also means something of the quality of our new birth, the quality of it. Because only one thing ultimately is imperishable. And that one thing that is ultimately imperishable is God himself, right? And so if our love, if our new birth, has this characteristic of being imperishable, it's impossible for it to last forever in wickedness or in impurity. 
No, anything that lasts forever is of God and will necessarily come with those qualities that God himself has. Philippians 4.8 provides a helpful list for us of kind of what this love is like, what this new birth is like. The Apostle Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Love, it's things of this quality that will last forever. It is things of this quality that are imperishable. Things that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely. And so if those things are the imperishable things, that means our love must take on the same characteristic. If it is an imperishable love, it must be a love in truth, a love in honor, a love in purity, a love in excellence. I remember the days before I came to know Christ and I thought that when I really liked someone or when I loved them, then that meant that mostly what I wanted to do was to like be impressive to them, right? Or like show them how cool I was in some way because then they would really see that I like them and they would like me back. And if you're talking about unbelievers, a lot of times that means you do a lot of really stupid things, right? Because you're trying to look really cool to them. So you end up using language you should never use, telling jokes you should never tell. And as a result, you think that, okay, now we're going to have a great relationship because, you know, we're on the same level. We see eye to eye. And so it's possible for unregenerate people to come into the church, people who are not born again, and they know that we're supposed to love one another, and their mentality is to love one another in that way, right? Like, how can I get on your level, get on your good graces? And that might be something like love, but it's not love in purity or in truth or in honor, right? Like the Apostle Paul tells us elsewhere to speak up, speak words that are only good for edification according to the need of the moment. Beloved, everything that is dark, everything that is impure is passing away. In 1 John 2.8, he says, At the same time, it is a new commandment I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him. There is no cause for stumbling. And so if we are to have this love that comes from this imperishable new birth, then it must be love that is of a quality that is pure, that is full of light, that is not passing away. Like the wicked things of the world, like the darkness that is now in the world, it must be a love that reflects the kingdom that is coming, the kingdom of heaven, where we are ultimately going. And if we have that sort of love, if we begin to love one another in that way right now, then we will surely love one another that way forever and ever. Peter, when he writes here that you have been born again, the you that he has here is plural. It's not singular. He's not saying you individually have been born again. He's saying you all, you as a church family have been born again of imperishable seed. And again in verse 25, when he says, the word is the good news that was preached to you. This is not to you singular. It's not like it was preached to you individually. This is the word that was preached to you corporately, you plural. And so this love that we have for one another, and again in 22, he calls it a brotherly love. It is beginning right now, but beloved, it will last into eternity. One of the things that 
most amazes me when I think about the, the new creation, how we will have all eternity there, is that we will never have to have any kind of artificial limit to any conversation, right? We will be able to get to know each other as well as we want, for as long as we want, without any interruptions or maybe with lots of interruptions, and we'll just come back to the conversation later. In other words, we'll be freed up to love in the new creation in a way that we can only taste the very beginning of right here. And I even love the idea that, you know, there are so many brothers and sisters I have in Christ who right now I can't even talk to because I don't know their language, right? Well, guess what? In the new creation, I'll have all eternity to learn all the different languages and then I can talk to every believer in Christ and I will be able to love everyone just the way that God calls me to. I mean, kids are a great gift, but, you know, one of the frustrating things about kids is, you know, probably from the ages that they're born until, heck, who knows, maybe when they're 18 or something. I haven't even found the age yet. You know, you're never able to have, like, a prolonged adult conversation, right? Like, if you were to come over to my house today and we were to try and visit, I guarantee you we would never get more than a minute into conversation before I would have somebody running into the room crying about something that someone else did to him and having to solve that problem right there. And my heart would just sink because I so want to know you and care for you and love you. And yet I have children that God's given me. And so I must attend to them as well. And so in this mortal body, we have all these barriers to loving one another with this imperishable love. Because right now we are perishable, right? We will die. But nevertheless, we can strive after this. We can strive to have this love that is evidence of this imperishable life that is within us, the life of God within our souls. We can strive to love one another with that kind of love. And we can just pray for grace with one another when all the perishable realities of our world kind of climb in and disrupt that love that we so earnestly want to have for one another. And so, again, since we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, that's why we are to love one another with this brotherly love. We are an eternal family. We can't get rid of each other, right? We're going to be around each other forever and ever. So we better learn to like each other, right? We better learn to love each other right now. If I'm in line at Dunkin' Donuts and someone's right behind me, I may not like that person, and that's okay, because I'm probably never going to see them again, right? But here in this room with you all, my prayer is that I will see every one of you forever and ever. And isn't that glorious? And so I want to love you like that right now in a way that will persist forever and ever. You are my forever family. You are more my family than the family I have at my biological birth. You are the family I have from my eternal birth. And so how much more should we love one another? Now, there's one other really important thing to see in this passage about that nature of love that we have for one another. And that is where this new birth comes from, which means it's ultimately where this love itself comes from, right? So again, verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Through the living and abiding word of God. And then Peter reiterates for us again, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. This word is the good news that was preached to you. So notice that it is the word of God that causes the new birth. And therefore, it's the word of God that causes the church to form, right? 
That's what we are as a church. We are the, the family of those who have been born again. And so it is the, the word of God that gives birth to the church of God. The word of God comes first. The word of God is preached. And as the word of God is preached, people are born again. And when people are born again, then they're a family. Then they are a church. And so the word of God is absolutely central for bringing us together. And so what does that mean just for our life as a church today? And what does it even mean for our mission in the world? Well, it means that we are a word-centered church, right? If we want to know unity as a church, if we want to know love for one another as a church, if we really want to be this family that God calls us to be, how are we going to be that sort of family? Only through the word of God, right? Only through the word of God continually birthing us into this common family and showing us the unity that we have with one another. And so as we, as a church, focus on the word of God and in our Sunday morning service, I hope you see how we strive to focus on the word of God in every last thing we do, right? The songs that we sing, we hope reflect and sometimes even are the words of God. We read scripture together. My preaching right now is supposed to be manifestly based on the word of God. When we go and take the Lord's Supper, many of the church fathers call the sacraments the the word of God made visible. So we're following the word of God. We're making the gospel visible when we take the Lord's Supper. And so in everything that we do, we're, we're striving to proclaim, to get out, to inculcate the word of God. And why do we do that? Well, not ultimately because we're all really heady people, right? And we really like reading. And so this is like a big book club. It's not that at all. It's because the word of God itself has power. And so when we come together, we want the word of God, the power of God to be exercised. And how do we exercise the power of God? We exercise it through the word of God. And when the word of God has its proper effect we experience this new birth, or if we have been born again, then we just experience that life of God continually flowing in our souls. And when the life of God is flowing in our souls, then we love one another, right? Because that's what the character of God is. That's what the life of God is. That's what we read in 1 John 4. Everyone who knows God loves his brother because God is love. And so when we hear the word of God, when we have faith in the word of God, when we imbibe, drink in, eat everything we can to get the word of God into our hearts, we trust that God himself, his power is at work in our hearts. And when that happens, we love one another. We are this eternal family of God. And so for that reason, we must be a people of the word. And as we consider our mission in the world, how is it that we expect people to be born again? How? I mean, is it mostly through our clever articulation? You know, our really persuasive arguments that Jesus really is the Son of God? Is it through really amazing strategies, really amazing outreaches that we figure out and then draw people in? Now, Peter says, again, that it's the imperishable seed. It is the power of God itself that causes the new birth. And so I hope that takes like a load off your shoulders, right? That it's not ultimately up to your perfect argument, your persuasiveness, your ideas, anything like that. You just have to do one thing, beloved. You just have to be faithful to the gospel message. You just have to tell people what Jesus actually did, right? That he actually came, that he actually died, that he actually rose again. 
all for the forgiveness of sins. So that if you believe in him right now, you can have eternal life. And if you're just faithful to that message, if, if you just share that with people and pray that God shows up, guess what? That's how God shows up. I mean, do you all remember in the book of Jonah, right? When Jonah went through Nineveh preaching, you know, basically just telling them that they're all going to die, that God's going to condemn them. And what did they do? They repented. Not because Jonah had some amazing message, but because God's word was going forth. Even in the book of Acts, when I read Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, right? I read that and I'm like, man, this was a really boring sermon, right? He's basically just telling the history of Israel, right? Why, why did anyone find this really compelling? And yet 3,000 people are saved. How does that happen? Just because he's faithful to the word of God and because the word of God has power. And for that reason, we are a word-centered church. And also, I would add to that right alongside that, a prayer-centered church. Because as we pray, as we wrestle with God saying, Lord, we're being faithful to your word. I want to see you work. Please work. As we wrestle with God in prayer and present God's word faithfully, then we let God give the growth. God give the new birth that we so long for all people to have, for all people to experience. Now, one last thing that I want to make sure I don't pass over uh, in these verses, and that is, again, the very end of verse 25, this word is the good news that was preached to you, the gospel that was preached to you. And so notice here that Peter is distilling for us what exactly is the word of God, right? On the one hand, we could think that the word of God is just this whole book, right? The whole Bible. And of course, that is true. Every word in here, I believe, every word in here is the divinely inspired Word of God. Well, I should say I believe that the Hebrew words and the Greek words are the divinely inspired Word of God, or translations may or not may not be good, but all the words in here are the Word of God. But Peter here says that the good news in particular is the Word of God. Now, in saying this, I think he's saying two things, really. One thing is he's telling us what this whole book is about, right? What this whole book is about. He's saying that all of this book, all of God's Word is focused on the gospel itself. And what is the gospel? The gospel is the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? It's the message that Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth, that he lived a perfect life, and that in his death, his perfection is then imputed to us. Our sin is imputed to him. He takes it to the grave, So our punishment is fully accomplished. And then he rises again from the dead so that if we just believe in him, we will have everlasting life, right? That is the gospel. That is the good news. Jesus Christ is reigning right now and he invites anyone who wants to repent of their sins to trust in him and to receive the new birth, the eternal birth into his kingdom. And so all of scripture from Genesis to Revelation in one way or another is pointing us to this glorious climax of God's plan, that Jesus is coming into the world to die for sinners so that God can have a people for himself. And so I hope that whenever you read scripture, you are always asking yourself the question, how does this point me to Jesus? How does this show me what the glorious things that Jesus did? And It's not always easy to find. That's another reason we have the church, right? We can ask one another, how does this work? Help me figure it out. But that should be what we strive toward is asking, how does this book, how does this passage 
point me to the gospel because ultimately it is the gospel that is the word of God that when it's preached to us will give us the new birth. But aside from saying that all of scripture points to the gospel, I think Peter is saying in particular that it is the gospel message itself, again, that message of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that has power to bring about new birth. Now, this power to bring about new birth, as verse 22 says, ultimately finds its home in a sincere brotherly love, right? In loving one another earnestly from a pure heart. And so that just makes me ask the question, how is it? How is it that believing the gospel, that just knowing the gospel itself, what I just said about the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, how is it that that right there generates in our hearts a sincere brotherly love, helps us to love one another? And so in closing, to answer that question, I want to look at Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. If you want to turn there, you can. Uh, It's Luke 7 verses 36 to 50. This is the story of a sinful woman forgiven. This is a story of a woman who believed the gospel who experienced the new birth, and then I want to see in what way this transformed her relationships with other people, the way that it transformed her relationships with other people. So Luke 7, beginning in 36. It says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now do you see how the life of this woman, the actions of this woman, are such a radically different life, a different way of interacting with others in the normal way that we see in the world? Again, it isn't love the way that the world conceives of love, but it's a much better much more eternal, much more lasting love than anything that we have by our natural selves. The thing that most stands out to me about this woman's love, 
as she directs it to Jesus, is that she does not care about the opinions of others. She does not care about the opinions of others. She goes into this Pharisee's house. We see that this Pharisee, Simon, is a very judgmental man, right? He's a very proud man. He's thinking in his head as soon as he sees this woman, oh, she's a sinner. And normally, in our flesh, when we come into the presence of someone else and we know that they're condemning us, we know that they have a low opinion of us, what happens to our hearts? We get self-conscious, right? We think, oh, what are they thinking about us? I don't know if I'm safe here. I don't know if I should be coming in here. We try to think through the Rolodex of our minds. You know, what are my credentials? What is good about me? You know, that, that this person should think well of me. And so we're very concerned about the opinions of other people. And yet, here is this woman, a sinner, coming into a Pharisee's house. She knows the Pharisee is a proud and judgmental man, but that does not stop her. Why does it not stop her? Because she loves Jesus. Because she wants to come into the presence of Jesus, and she wants to wash his feet. And she says, who could care less what this Pharisee thinks about me? Who could care less if this Pharisee thinks I'm a sinful woman and doesn't think I should be here, or if he does think I should be here? I love Jesus Christ, and so I am coming in to worship Jesus Christ. And so she has this extreme self-forgetfulness where she doesn't have to justify herself. She's not worried about what the Pharisee or others think about her. No, she is in the presence of her Savior, and that is enough for her. She is in the presence of her Savior, and therefore she is weeping. She is pouring out this precious ointment on his feet. And so it's this love for the Savior that gives her this lack of concern for what others around her are thinking about her. Beloved, if we want to love one another with brotherly love, we cannot do that if we are always concerned about what we think about one another, about what others are thinking about us. Self-concern, being worried about how do others see me, how do others picture me, is inconsistent with truly loving other people. Truly loving other people is being able to say, I don't really matter here, my reputation doesn't matter, I want to serve someone else. Whether they like it, don't like it, whatever they think, positive, negative, I'm going to serve them. That is an eternal, imperishable love that is of the nature that God gives. But if we're always concerned about, well, what are they going to think about me? What are they going to say about me? Then essentially we are acting on self-regard, self-concern. So we are not going to be able to love one another. And so when we experience the new birth and we have this joy in our Savior that we have been forgiven, all of a sudden we don't care as much about what other people think and we just want to serve them. The other thing that we see about this woman as she grasps the gospel, as she experiences the new birth, is that she is radically generous. That she does have this precious ointment, and by no means was she a wealthy woman. Indeed, by the identification of being a sinner and by having this precious ointment, indications are that she was probably a prostitute. She probably needed this precious ointment in order to find more customers, in order to make money for herself. And yet, and yet she was willing to sacrifice even this thing that was necessary to her employment to pour it on the feet of Jesus Christ because she loved him so much because she knew what he had done for her. And so, beloved, in the same way, when the good news of the gospel is preached to us, our eyes are open to the wonder of all that God has done for us and we can become 
radically generous people. We don't feel like we have to take care of ourselves anymore. We don't have to protect ourselves anymore. We can give and give and give because God is so good and so generous above and beyond anything that we ourselves could give. This woman recognized how much she had been forgiven. She received the gospel. She received the mercy of Jesus Christ. And because of that, she was able to leave behind the fear of man, concern of other people. She was able to leave behind self-protection. And she was able to love lavishly. And so ultimately, the thing that stands out about this woman's love is that she only cares about honoring Jesus, right? She only cares about honoring Jesus. And beloved, this is what should happen to our souls when we truly understand the gospel. When we truly understand that Jesus came, that he gave his life in an excruciating death, that he rose again to give us life, that we should say, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. I just want to make my life count for Jesus. I want my life to be a living sacrifice to Jesus Christ. And when we give our lives as that living sacrifice to Jesus Christ, out of that fuel of the new birth, the fuel of the word of God, beloved, our love for others, our love for the family of faith, for everyone else that's come to embrace Jesus Christ in the same way, will just bounce off every single wall in here and will make the church a radical community of love like nothing we can imagine. Again, not because of our natural powers, our natural sense, but because the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, has had its effect on our hearts to make us forget about ourselves, forget about protecting ourselves, and to just say, I want to worship Jesus with everything that I have. Beloved, let's pray that God would make us that sort of radically loving community by the power of the new birth, by the power of the word of God. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for giving us your word. We thank you, Lord, most of all for delivering to us, even though we're thousands of miles and thousands of years away from when it first happened, for delivering to us the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, for opening our hearts so that this gospel would not just bounce off our hearts like metal, but would actually penetrate our hearts and give us new birth. Lord, would you help us, would you cause us to rejoice in this gospel of your Son, to adore your Son with all the new life power that you give us, Lord, so that we can be the community of brotherly love like you call us to be. Lord, make us like this woman who shed tears at Jesus' feet, who anointed his feet with ointment. Lord, let us be just like her in order that we may be the church of love that you call us to be. Lord, would you hear now our prayers of confession and repentance and our prayers of intercession for those around us right now.